and viruses steal our genetic signals to generate human virus genes? Can these proteins alter the course of viral infection? In this episode of the review, recorded via Zoom, we will answer these questions with Dr. Leah Mann, a postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for Virus Research. Welcome to the review. I'm Elena Sugru and I'll be your host. In this series, we go over a recent publication with one of the authors involved as a way for us all to better understand new concepts in virology. So today we're going to be talking about the recent paper you contributed to, which just came out in Cell yesterday, where you show that a large group of viruses, including influenza, can steal genetic signals from their hosts and produce a variety of previously undetected proteins. There are a lot of very nifty terms in this work, like start snatching and UFOs. To start off, it would be good if you could remind all of us about what cap snatching is. So viruses, they, uh, they rely on the host cell machinery when they produce viral proteins. So this means that there is a wide range of mechanisms for uh, viral RNAs to be recognized as host uh, in order to allow for uh, the translation of viral proteins as well as passing cell quality control and not be degraded. And the flu, along with other viruses of the same group, uh, which is the segmented negative strand viruses, they they don't really embarrass themselves by making a cap. So uh, instead, they're going to steal uh, the cap of nascent cellular mRNAs while they are in the nucleus. And to do so, um, well, the viral polymerase they, uh, binds the cap and a nanonucleinase. <laughs> this word is hard. Sorry. Uh, to do so, <laughs> <laughs> the viral polymerase binds the cap and an endonuclease included in the polymerase uh, is going to cut the mRNA at about 11 to 13 uh, nucleotides downstream of it, which is then used to prime viral transcription. So basically, uh, you, you end up with a chimeric mRNA, which uh, has the first nucleotides that derives from the host, and the rest is the viral sequence. Okay, thank you for that. That's very informative. So we now all can understand about why you and the rest of the authors decided to do this work. Yeah. A research focus that we have in the lab is to study all the proteins that constitute a viral particle. And that way we can get a grasp at the diversity pool that exists from one particle to another in the course of infection. And to do so, we use the technique that's called mass spectrometry, which allows you to scan all the proteins that are present in one given sample of purified viral particles. And then you can map these scans to a known database, and then you see which one of the proteins that you're looking for are in the viral particle. And this led us to discover an unexpectedly really um, known viral proteins with extended N-termini. And I guess that's when the study began and Lee started to work on that question and a lot of collaboration were established then to approach the question in as many angles as it was possible. The question was then to know how these N-termini extended products were translated because it implied uh, that you have a translation start signal that is upstream of the known canonical one. And then we hypothesized that cap snatch sequences can bear star codons that can be accessed. And this would lead to extended version of known proteins if the start site is in frame with uh, the viral protein, or maybe a host virus Frankenstein chimeric protein if there is a shift of frame. And so you mentioned mass spectrometry there, but in the paper, there's also a wide variety of other techniques that, and tools that were used to answer your questions. So could you talk us through some of the key experiments? Yeah. 
what we did was um, we first have to uh, make sure of two things for this particular mechanism to occur, uh, that we find start sites uh, upstream of the canonical start, and also make sure that the, there is no stop codons too early in the sequence in at least one of the three protein uh, possible reading frames, so that you can generate a peptide that, let's say, is long enough for it to be relevant. So first, we, uh, we decided to screen all of these sequences that were stolen by the cap snatching mechanisms uh, to identify potential start codons that can be accessed by ribosome. And we found them in approximately 12% of them. So this would be what we called uh, start snatching. And this, we didn't know it occurred before this study. After that, we had to make sure that uh, these start sites uh, could be accessed to ribosomes. So we used a drug that starts ribosome at the start of a of the translation, so it stays on uh, the start site. And so uh, this allows us to see that these sites are accessible for translation initiation. And then from that, we translated in silico all possible frames to look for premature stop codons and see whether uh, any of stop codon could prevent upstream, well, peptide expression. And we found that in the non-translating region of each segment, uh, we were able to identify at least one reading frame that was long enough to be relevant. And after that, uh, we showed that these upstream open reading frames were translatable. And for that, we used luciferase beta assays. And after that, we searched for any effect that their presence could have in the course of infection. That's really interesting. So you mentioned some of the insights you gained from those experiments, but it would be good to hear sort of summarize some of the, the new information you gained overall. We were able uh, with these experiments to demonstrate the existence and the accessibility of these new reading frames that uh, actually neither the host nor the virus seemed to prevent from happening. So this was very interesting. And one of the experiments we did was testing uh, recombinant viruses uh, to, that was lacking one of the peptides of interest whether, and see whether it could affect the course of infection. And we showed that they can modulate virulence and they interfere with the immune system as well. So I, I guess that in the future, we want to investigate further that part. And finally, uh, we were able to show that uh, an immunogenic peptide uh, when expressed using this mechanism uh, can be recognized and activate uh, cytotoxic T cells. That's a really big result as well. Um, so could you talk through some of the, the broader implications of this work? Are there implications for other viruses? Yes, we don't know much yet about how these peptides exactly act and could contribute to viral fitness. But we know that in eukaryotes, uh, having genes with extending and termini and uh, codons accessible, uh, start codon access upstream of the canonical ones can have roles in uh, regulation mechanisms. And so it is possible that here uh, similar mechanisms can exist here. As for other viruses, we saw that uh, such mechanisms can be used for all the viruses in uh, that cap snatch. So that involves uh, viruses such as uh, Lassa virus and a bunch of Boniaviridae, which are uh, relevant human pathogens. And other studies have shown that upstream translation is also used by some of enteroviruses. And besides, there was recently a preprint out there mentioning the existence of such mechanisms that, uh, well, upstream translation for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so there is a possibility that many viruses in very diverse uh, viral families can share that ability to access these frames.
That'll be something to be really interesting to look into. Is that something that might be on the cards for the project next or are there other ideas to look at next for this project? Yeah, so that's one of the ideas that we want to identify. And uh, the other part will be obviously to further characterize what is going on on influenza model. So with the synthesis of uh, this peptides, what the implications of having such proteins, uh, which are obligate by products of translation and see that effects in the context of uh, relevant infection. So this work was obviously very collaborative if you look at the author list. And I already know the somewhat unusual story of how you all linked up together for this work, but it'd be great if you could sort of let everyone know how it came to work out that way. So as I mentioned, it was a work that was initiated by Ed uh, at the time, and then uh, Liz joined and performed many of the experiments. And uh, they were surrounded by many collaborators to cover many of the disciplines that such a work involved. And while the story was being wrapped up, another study became available as preprint by uh, the Monsonai School of Medicine from a team led by uh, Ivan Maradzi. And actually both studies were uh, very close and this would have been the perfect case of uh, us being scooped. <laughs> so uh, we wrapped up the paper on our end and we cited and commented on the preprint in the discussion. And as our own preprint got out, Ed used Twitter to promote it while mentioning uh, well, the Murazi study. And they somehow became aware of our study as well. And then uh, the nicest thing happened, uh, Ivan reached out to Ed saying how he was fed up with competition in science for paper and he offered to merge the two studies and share uh, with that first and last authorship. And then it led to a very intense process to mesh up the two studies, but the paper I guess is better for it and our data and theirs uh, nicely complemented each other. So it was very, uh, very nice in the end. That's a really nice story of scientists being nice to each other, which I think we can all use right now, especially <laughs> when it's not always like that. So now we can move on to questions about you. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear how you found your recent time, obviously having to work from home, um, when, unless you're doing coronavirus work, and how has it affected your work? And I was also curious if you noticed any difference with the submission process when everyone's also in the same boat working from home. I'm going to start with uh, work on my part. So I wasn't involved in uh, coronavirus uh, response in the end. Uh, and this has led to me working from home all the time. And it was very challenging to adapt at first. And uh, I guess that the fact that all the wet lab experiments suddenly came to an end, uh, which was, uh, well, a bit of a drawback and a bit of a pain to uh, adjust to full-time computer and not knowing what was going on. But my luck was that actually part of the plan was uh, for me to get involved in drive projects uh, to begin with uh, learning mass spectrometry data analysis, which I wasn't familiar with beforehand. So I guess that instead of working at the bench, I was able to switch to these activities full-time. So I was lucky that I had some continuity over the projects that I was meant to do. It just became full-time instead of part-time, so that was a bit unexpected. And as for the paper, uh, the fact that we were uh, very advanced and uh, just wrapping up the meshing of the two manuscripts meant, meant that, um, well, with all the data we had and the expertise from everybody, it didn't stall that much the publication process, I guess. 
that's good for everyone, I, I can imagine. And so it would also be interesting to hear about um, some projects you yourself have on the go and, and what you'd be working on in the future. At the moment, my hope is to be able to go back at the lab and actually continue the experiments that I was hired to do in the first place, because <laughs> I didn't join the lab that long ago before we went into lockdown and things got weird. So there is actually lots to do. And uh, my wish is to continue this kind of project uh, in the future. And it will allow me to learn cool new ways to study viral dynamics that I didn't know before. So uh, I'm very excited about that. I actually can't wait to go back to the lab. <laughs> I can imagine several people feeling the same way right now. And also we often ask this question, if you weren't a scientist, what would you be? <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that aside from uh, the usual plan B that anyone develops, I guess, as a PhD candidate to maybe open a coffee library or something like that in <laughs> yourself, I guess that uh, before I chose to uh, study life science and biology, I considered studying to become an interpreter. So maybe this project is my way to be dealing with translation anyway. <laughs> That is a very poetic answer. <laughs> I think with that, um, all that's left is to thank you for taking part in this Zoom podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Review. And thank you to Leah for joining us in this episode. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at cbrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com or tweet us at cbrblog. And you can find our previous podcast content on cvrblog.myportfolio.com.